What are your thoughts on the Mandalorian? Why even watch the Mandalorian? Don't, don't yet? cost me, cl- me like this. All right, take whatever you want. Greg, be part of the cultural conversation, okay? The the world is right reeling right now. I, <laughs> what does the Mandalorian mean? I don't want to judge things based on social media. However, seeing social media and people, I don't know, falling at the feet of John Favreau and whoever the other guy is behind the Mandalorian, a little pathetic, guys. Come on, have some dignity. <laughs> it is. It is like. <clears throat> It's it's the continued evolution of Star Wars trying to be Marvel, because okay. when it when season two started, it was like, oh my god, this is perfect, like an adventure set in the Star Wars universe adjacent to all the other bullshit. That's awesome. <laughs> and as season two progresses, hey, remember all that bullshit from the cartoons and the other things that you never watched? Here's more of it, all of it. <laughs> dump truck, a dump truck of garbage. Yeah. So you and I remember dark sabers? No, who gives a shit? <laughs> yeah. So you and I are not uh, Star Wars aficionados. I'd say we're fans, like, in general of the franchise. However, we haven't visited Wikipedia and or watched the Cartoon Network programs. Or what are they on? Yes. Disney Disney Channel or Disney XD or something. So yeah. I don't know who Asuka is. I don't know who <laughs> the Dark... Uh, I believe it's Ashoka, girl. Oh, whatever. <laughs> uh, I don't know who the Dark Sabres are. Is that something you said? Are they the Darth Sabres or uh, the Dark Sabres? A dark saber, it's like a black lightsaber oh, okay. that uh, is apparently special somehow. Right. I don't know. All right. Yeah. So I should... Br- Again, I'm not a nerd. <laughs> I don't know these things. Okay. It's special enough I should run to Target and get it. Is that what you're saying? Or Yes, absolutely. <laughs> right. You need to buy all the toys. Okay. So you, you've you seen... It sounds like you've seen uh, two two seasons of it. I have not watched minute one of The Mandalorian because I'm, I'm a cool person who <laughs> leads a life of... Who has a job and and devotes himself to cooler pursuits like hockey and mm. <laughs> and fantasy football? But anyway, uh, t- tell tell me more about the Mandalorian. Uh, first, uh, clarify this for me: it's not an hour long program with the expected or requisite ten episodes per season, right? It's only eight episodes per season, and the- no, it's only eight episodes, and the episodes average between thirty and forty five minutes. Really, it's very strange, very inconsistent. Yes. Okay. Um, and uh, apparently it takes 15 million to do one episode, so... What? Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but the episodes do look like a million bucks. They do, and uh, they... Weirdest cavalcade of directors. Peyton Reed has done a lot of episodes. But I don't know so what his rate is, though, but it's not $15 million. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it looks like a million bucks. Okay. Like, the show looks like a movie. It's very impressive. Right. Um, but also, they brought on Bryce Dallas Howard to direct a few episodes, and in the weirdest one, Carl Weathers directed oh, well, an episode. Okay, he's on the series. He's familiar with the crew. Like, mm. I understand, like, when, say... I, I have a sneaky suspicion it's John Favreau being like, hey, you want a director's credit? Why don't I throw, you, throw this bone yes, at you? Yes, there's also a bit of that going on, too. Like, obviously, the crew's very familiar shooting at 8 to 12 hours of a, of a season. Like, it doesn't matter who has the director's credit. It's like when, I don't know, John Slattery or John Hamm would step into the director's chair... Um, mm-hmm. Or say when, I'm when sure it, Brian Cranston directed a few episodes of Breaking yeah. Bad, you know, it's like after a few seasons here, like it's it's basically on our yeah. pilot. <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm sure that's the case. I was more curious by Robert Rodriguez directing an episode because you say it looks like a million bucks, and Robert Rodriguez's other works seem to suggest any, anything but. They seem to be shot for like <laughs> five dollars. 
<laughs> well, no, that's the amazing enigma of Robert Rodriguez. The more budget he has, the worse its film is, <laughs> inevitably. So, um, but I mean, it has a very like distinct house style. It's very like Western inspired, and again, like going back, to, it's aping that old samurai look that mm-hmm. the original series had. So you can enjoy it on a very technical the original level. There se- oh, you mean the, the original film series, the original, the original, yeah, episode episode four, a new hope. Got it. So, okay. Yeah, um, there's literally like one episode that uh, the episode where he teams up with Ashoka. It's like literally the bad guy is in the hidden fortress. Like okay. it's you know very like Japanese style pagoda looking kind of thing. So okay, yeah. But John, the big difference between those old samurai movies is that those were cool, and Star Wars is lame. So uh, how do how do they <laughs> well, Greg? How do you resolve that dialectic there? <laughs> But Greg, it's Boba Fett, but not Boba Fett. I see. And then they bring Boba Fett back, and then I threw up in my mouth because I hate it. <laughs> okay. So first season, cool. Second season, like bringing all the Wikipedia ephemera, like Boba exactly. Fett, Ashoka. Bringing Boba Fett back. Yeah. yeah. And then the reason why I want to talk about it is because, spoiler alert for a show where spoilers don't fucking no, matter. No, I, no, I like, see. Life. I know. I Again, I haven't seen minute one of the show, but I know everything that happens because yeah. I opened Twitter on Friday morning, and everybody's going gaga about the Mandalorian. So yeah, yeah. Spo- so, spoil away for me, even though I haven't seen it. But in case mm-hmm. you do want to be surprised, like skip ahead about three, four minutes. Yeah, spoiler for the final, the season finale of season two. Luke Skywalker, or should I say, his CGI homunculus <laughs> makes an appearance. <laughs> And again, the question becomes, every time they digitally de-age an actor, why not just hire a different actor? (laughs) Because, like I said, it's an impressive CGI creation when he doesn't move. It's like literally like the worst of it. It looks like one of those flat pictures where they digitally cut off the the, mouth. Yeah, I can't remember the animator who (laughs) pioneered in massive air quotes that that technique that uh, Conan O'Brien used the great effect during the late show. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, like at worst, it looks like that. Um, And, you know, it's because it's like for the majority when he actually shows up, you know, it's like him in the cloak and he's doing all his lightsaber moves. And you know it's him because he's got the green lightsaber. No one else has a green lightsaber. And there's, like, at this point in the timeline, there's only, like, three Jedi, so it's got to be one of them. Um, And so, but then when he takes off the hood, it's, you know, that CGI, like, you know, stone-faced, like, "Uh, (laughs) you're not normal. What are you? (laughs) Well, I was... Is an improvement, say, over the corpse of Peter Cushing and and Carrie Fisher in Rogue One, which I will I will go on record as as the, one of the worst Star Wars movies, if not the worst. Um, I've got prequels in my mind in my head too, but yeah, those. It, it's really hard to gauge because it's like, is it a mannequin or a crash test dummy? <laughs> like, that's what you're that's what you're comparing these two things against. So. Boom! Roasted, precision strike. Return to base. <laughs> Turn to base, Rogue Leader. All right, cool. <laughs> and then the other big thing is that uh, Baby Yoda's real true name is Grogu, continuing the Star Wars tradition of having the dumbest <laughs> fucking names. Um, so, he gets he, he gets whisked away by Luke Skywalker. So now Baby Yoda, still merchandisable, but maybe not part of the series going forward. I, we'll see. Well, that's what I don't understand. Like, Obviously, they don't want to take any risks with this... Uh, with a passionate fan base and a, and a property as, as big as this. So they obviously bring back literally Luke Skywalker, Boba Fett, a young a CGI Princess Leia in Rogue One, and, and literally end that movie like where the episode four began. Because like, yeah. I think that's what fans expecting. It's familiar. It, it'll lead to satisfied customers, right? Like, we, we talked about this earlier, like the Marvelification of Star Wars. Part of what makes the Marvel stuff work mm-hmm. is that it, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a direct adaptation. 
And yeah. it's like, oh, this is the remix of it. This is our version of what we're doing right here. Where Star Wars, it's extremely linear. And that's why they always feel like they need to CGI homunculus the actors. Because no one's ever played these parts except these people. Got it. And again, like it only has one timeline. It's not like, oh well, in issue uh, 745 in the you know Ultimate Universe, <laughs> like it, there's only one Star Wars universe, and so everyone is very obsessive about oh, where does this take place and when does this happening and why isn't this person involved? And again, like that's ultimately going to be the downfall, and that's what I'm experiencing watching Mandalorian season two. Is like it can't be, it can't exist as its own thing. It's got to be part of the larger universe, as opposed to the Marvel stuff, which is allowed to be freeform and like it's like jazz, baby. <laughs> it's like oh, our version of the uh, the the um, who's that racist caricature, the um, Fu Manchu guy, <laughs> uh, uh, Doctor Fu Manchu. I don't know what you mean. Um, the the bad uh, the bad guy from uh, Iron Man three. Oh, the man uh, the Manchurian, not the Mandalorian. That's yes. where you're confused. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, like, in that version, it's like, oh, it's an actor, it's not a real person, blah, 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 you know, it's like, they can have fun with it, like, doing that, whereas Star Wars, you can't do that, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. You can't be like, in our version, uh, uh, Darth Vader is a a squeaky little, you know, elf creature, you know. Okay, so John, in our role as business consultants, we've already Mm -hmm. fixed the movie theater experience, uh, discussed in the last couple of weeks, let's um, Mm -hmm. let's consult Disney and Lucasfilm right now, And, and here's what we do. We do a Star Trek, not reset, but parallel universe. Basically, what mm. they did with the film reboots with Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, Zoe Saldana, we say, like, oh, it's a whole other timeline, and now we have a whole other universe of, of, of possibility. Hey, you know, you don't like that Boba Fett or Luke Skywalker isn't here anymore? Don't worry. They still exist in their universe. You can still enjoy yeah. the films that you saw as a kid. But now we're going to go do our own thing. And here it's going to be... Well, actually, you don't even need to do that. Yeah, okay. Because part of it is, like, the Star Wars universe is so big. Everyone can be having their own little side adventures. And, like, that's kind of what worked at The Mandalorian. It's like, oh, he would run into, like, remnants of the Empire. Oh, he would run into a rebel base or something. But it's like, it wasn't like he was tied to that story. It was just a little side thing. But then why did they bring it back? I don't understand. Like, why did they bring back these characters from Star Wars, the Clone Wars. Because fans cream their pants over it, I guess. And again, they need to sell more toys. So So it's easy. Even though you could, yeah, you could, but you could cut new stuff from whole cloth. That's what they were doing in the first season. You know, we had a bunch of, uh, you had uh, Nick Nolte as a little puppet man, you know, like fun (laughs) stuff like that. Well, it's the voice of Nick Nolte. I don't think Nick Nolte's able enough to (laughs) uh, marionette a puppet or control a puppet. So, but it was his perfect gravelly voice that I, that I was aware of too. Because I again I open up Twitter and see that it literally a, a, a landslide of Mandalorian content comes at me. That's Disney's plan: landslide of Star Wars yeah. content coming at your face. Yeah. So I think we settled that. Um, let's see what other account, yeah. what other accounts do we have to settle? Uh, <laughs> this being a movie podcast where we try to catch up on films we haven't seen yet, um, I'd like to affirm to you, John, that we've got a distinction here. Um, we're recording this on uh, just prior to Christmas, and and. As luck would have it, uh, one of our favorite writers on the internet, his name's Drew McGarry, uh, wrote a column recapping the movie Love Actually, and he affirmed that he was the last man on Earth who'd actually seen it. And I'd like to say that we've got him beat. <laughs> As of this day, you and I are the last people to actually see the movie Love Actually. <laughs> I mean, unless you count, like, spurts when it plays on TV, like in between commercial <laughs> breaks. <laughs> That's all. That's all I know. I know it's got an expanded cast, but yeah, I've never actually sat down and watched the whole thing from beginning to end until now. Yes. Really, Mike, Christmas is a time 
for people with someone they love in their lives. And that's not you? That's not me, Michael. When I was young and successful, I was greedy and foolish, and now I'm left with no one, wrinkled and alone. <laughs> wow. Uh, thanks for that, Bill. For what? Well, for actually giving a real answer to a question. It doesn't often happen here at Radio Watford, I can tell you. Ask me anything you like, I'll tell you the truth. The best shag you ever had? Britney Spears. Wow. No, only kidding. <laughs> she was rubbish. OK, um, here's one. How do you think the new record compares to your old classic stuff? Oh, come on, Mikey. You know as well as I do, the record's crap. <laughs> but wouldn't it be great if number one this Christmas wasn't some smug teenager but an old ex-heroin addict searching for a comeback at any price? All those young popsters come Christmas Day, they'll be stretched out naked with a cute bird balancing on their balls. So, th so this is big for us, uh, particularly because it, it completely butts up against the ethos of our show. <laughs> the idea of our show is to aspire to movie snobdom, in which we're looking at old classics and or cult films, or, or really filling, or really filling out our cinephile bona fides. Um, however, we're butting up a, against a genre that's a complete that seems to be the complete antithesis of that, and that is the romantic comedy, uh, particularly the modern day romantic yeah. comedy. Yes, um, not that they're you know. Uh, romantic comedies can't achieve classic status. Yeah. We've obviously got, you know, you, you've got male. Uh, <laughs> you've got male. <laughs> All right, maybe not that one. Harold uh, and Maude we've done uh, before. Harry Met Sally. Yep. Um, 27 Dresses. You know, all the great film <laughs> canon includes these movies. Bride Wars. And so... <laughs> <laughs> the Ugly Truth. All the... Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the classics of the genre. Catherine Heigl was like Greta Garbo. <laughs> yes. <our day. laughs> But now we get to actually decide and adjudicate whether love actually belongs in the pantheon of great films. Greg, what say you? <laughs> well, here's the thing. Like a lot of other movies that that are seasonal, that come around mm -hmm. in, in great seasons, they aren't great, let's say, achievements in terms of the cinematic art. However, I understand they do serve a purpose. And in this case, it's, it's to basically take this very complicated con concept of love. John, you and I are married. We understand like the highs and lows of relationships, of, of, of marriage, and, and a lot of other things. A again, it's rough territory. It's very fulfilling, but can also like bring its challenges. What if we just smooth all those out? What if we make everything just look like linoleum? <laughs> and so, this is just like the smoothest movie I've ever seen. Lighting smooth, the faces on the actors are smooth, the conflict is smooth, everything just smooth. And just let it warp out all the wrinkles of your brain and just let it flow <laughs> over you. Uh, my experience watching this movie was I was zapped back to 2003 in a way I was not expecting. <laughs> no. Um, with Dido and Maroon 5 on the soundtrack, I was like, oh God, what's happening to me? Yep. Am I Benjamin Buttoning back into a 12-year-old boy? What is happening? <laughs> oh man, the hairstyles, yes. It was, it was and an I think odd that, era, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's ultimately like why this film endures the way it does is it is quite a nostalgia trip and you're right it is soft it's very soft but is it well made uh no <laughs> <laughs> well no okay um, let's first talk about that era because this is what I, this was not what i was expecting i knew that um this movie hits some emotional chords via documentary footage of people being reunited at the airport that's how the movie begins and ends what i did not expect is voiceover at the very beginning to reference 9-11 um <laughs> 
And so, well, I mean, I was thinking about it as we were watching, like watching that first airport. You can't have an airport scene without people thinking about, you know, like the security and stuff. Yeah, like well, that. especially yeah. Granted, you know, it's it's the only part of this movie that cares about you know congruity at all. But <laughs> yeah, so uh, again, it kind of put a shock to my system. But it's also trying to, I don't know, import the the or sorry, um, kind of traffic in the importance of love. And so that's what all these story it. And also speaking of the era, this is one of many what were dubbed hyperlink movies. Um, so instead of talking about, like, say, a, a small group of characters with a, a clear beginning, middle, and end, instead we jump around with a lot of different, uh, a lot of different storylines. Um, I'm talking about movies like Traffic or the movies of uh, Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu, like Amaros Peros or Twenty One Grams. Um, and people have thought, like, oh, this is, like, the future of movie making, um, <laughs> these quality films. And and I feel like this this put a nail in that coffin. Like, <laughs> Remember Crash? Yeah. <laughs> this and Crash, like, said, yeah, this probably isn't the future of movie making right here. Um, mm-hmm. Because we have a, a hugely overqualified cast um, with a very... And just too many stories. It's hard to inve- get yeah. invested when there's just the amount of stories we have going on. And like, again, the, the connections we're talking about are very tangential. Like, um, uh, we've got PL Travers, who's, uh, <laughs> brother, <laughs> brother with, uh, the guy from Notting Hill. We've got Severus Snape, who's cheating on PL Travers. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very hard to keep track. Yeah. Japanese ambassador to four o'clock tomorrow. Certainly. So this comes from the mind of Richard Curtis. John, you weren't familiar with Richard Curtis before this, were you? Or no, I was not. Okay, so now he's become. In terms of what you think of the modern day romantic comedy, you can thank him, because he came up in comedy. He 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 got acquainted with Rowan Atkinson coming out of Oxford and and f- built up his, his his comedy bona fides on sitcoms like Mr. Bean. And stuff like that, but it wasn't and until, Black Adder. Yeah, yeah, Black Adder. Yeah, and it wasn't until uh, the, the movie his he wrote the movie Four Weddings and a Funeral that mm-hmm. basically what we have that combined with like what when Harry Met Sally basically created the template for what we expect out of romantic comedy, like meet cutes, like breakups between the third and second and third act, like all that all that kind of stuff, and um, and also bringing a, a British sensibility. To it, a very smooth British sensibility to it, um, mostly trafficked in by uh, the 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 the, the, the um, 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 stumbling, um, sarcastic. I just love it. Love is defined by the amount of butterflies one has in one's stomach. Yes. Ooh, oh, bother. Yes. Uh, um, perfectly, perfectly captured by Hugh Grant, um, who in this movie plays the Prime Minister of England, disappears for fifty minutes, and. But Greg, what's his defining characteristic as a Prime Minister? He's weak. Yes. He's weak and he's small. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let's talk about his storyline first. Let's talk about storyline one of twelve, and it starts at Ten Downing Street. Uh, Hugh Grant is a is a single old man who's just been 
I'm sorry, I can't I can't imagine anybody like his age and his like relationship status being suddenly thrust into the prime ministership. But anyway, he it's literally day one at uh it's literally Ten day, Downing Street. Yeah, day one at Ten Downing Street. And this is when we get um a, a key characteristic of this movie. Um, it's not just about fa- finding love. It's particularly about finding loves in your subordinates or coworkers. So <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> so he first meets his assistant. Uh, it's 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 actually a beautiful woman, and she's very serious. But then she meet, but her his eyes immediately fall to the mousy, uh, the mousy caterer, unconfident caterer n- named Natalie, played by yeah. an actress I don't know, but uh, <laughs> that's who catches his affections. <laughs> Yeah, and um, their relationship is complicated because the U.S. president stops by, a mm-hmm. Texan played by uh, 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 Billy Bob Thornton, yeah. who we haven't seen in a while. Whatever happened to him? I know I he, think to he can be choosy. Career. Yeah, he can be choosy. Yeah. It's, remember he had that embarrassing interview where he wanted to promote his band and <laughs> would yeah, refuse to talk <laughs> about his... Yeah, I think that's... He's reached that stage in his career. Like, I think he wants to okay. do something else. Hugh Grant's the same way. He hates being an actor and a celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm sure they had a lot of talk to talk about on set. <laughs> okay, but yes. Uh, so um, the the U.S. president stops by for mm-hmm. one scene. Yes, where they have negotiations. <laughs> um, what specifically? It's left to your imagination. Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. Like we're talking about the uh, a broad romantic comedy designed for everybody. So the it's, details are not important. Yeah. At so all. <laughs> so it's not like they're talking about the current war in Iraq or <laughs> I don't know, like uh, oil drilling rights off the There's North Sea. There's nods to the special relationship, and you know, like that relationship gets strained a bit because she walks the the caterer walks in mm-hmm. to the president alone. And you know he's a Texas Southern boy, so he's a uh, his his charms get the better of him, and he uh, he uh, yeah kind of a cost. No, jo- yeah, no, very important. The prime minister steps out and retrieves files as if as if the the head of the government of England has to step out of the room <laughs> and retrieve st- files himself. It does it does kind of imagine the prime minister's role to be very modest. Yeah, <laughs> like he's yeah. in this like little four room house. Yeah. It's like oh dear, where did I put my papers? <laughs> But but anyway, you're right. This well, it really starts is um, is the meet cute. In which case, like uh, she meets him for the first time, and she's flustered and she swears in front of the prime minister in this magisterial house, Ten Downing Street, and that's that's the meet cute. And I think that's why so many of the of the storylines in this movie center around uh, boss assistant relationships or coworker relationships, because. Come on, it's built around the idea of a meet cute, and a meet yeah. cute isn't funny unless there's some like idea of propriety that's being and you don't violated. Need to write, you don't need to contrive reasons why they met. Yeah. Like you don't need you know like uh, their foot getting stuck in a manhole cover. I forget <laughs> what Jennifer Lopez movie that is, but yeah. <laughs> yeah but again, like impropriety has to be violate, violated, or there has to be some kind of embarrassment. And you see that in the workplace, or at a wedding, or at a funeral, which all which all are set pieces. Happens. Yeah, which all <laughs> yes. happen in this movie, which are all set pieces <laughs> in Love Actually. So. But anyway, yeah, but it, to continue on to the storyline, yes, the the Texan makes a move on her, the Texan president, and um, it, our prime minister, played by Hugh Grant, is obviously very upset, and and he decides to to violate the special relationship at a joint press mm. conference. Says like stands up like I, I I'm going to prove that I'm not a wimp and stand up to um, the most powerful nation. <laughs> those bullies, com- Americans. Yeah. Those bully Americans. Yeah. How dare they? <laughs> yeah, and everyone's really proud of him. Um, everybody mm. wants like. Uh, the the small weak United uh, UK to stand up to the bullish uh, 
United States. I do wish we went to the... In other news, the stock market is plummeting today. Because <laughs> <laughs> the special relationship has now been violated. <laughs> well, that's what's, that's what's so frustrating about this movie is that it kind of sets you up to think that it's going to zag and then it just zigs exactly where you think it's going to go. Because from there, like... She sends him a Christmas card where she mm-hmm. kind of lets her affections really be known. And then he's like, well, well I must go greet her. All right, let's, let's ride out into the countryside. And John, you're forgetting, you're forgetting another important scene. A, oh. a character has to say, I'm in love, but he can't use his words to do it. Well, the characters do use their words to say that. <laughs> but Greg, that's, not, that's just not classy, okay? That's yeah. not British. Yeah, so again, to, to mine... Mind whether depths of comedy we have here. We have to violate the impropriety or embarrass ourselves. So of course, Hugh Grant does the silly dance around, you know, the trademark of the movie. He, he dances to the Pointer Sisters or something. And of mm-hmm. course, unbeknownst to him, somebody's watching him make a fool of himself at Ten Downing Street. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, like that has to happen too. That's the other expectation. Then the. Per per our our second act twist, like the relationship has to break up, and it seems all hope is lost until, as you said, this she, he receives a Christmas card from her and decides to go to uh, what's Wandsworth, um, a, a rough neighborhood, <laughs> which is still like the, still like the nicest area of England, just north of London. <laughs> I mean, everyone who knocks on the door is like, "Well, I'll help you. Why not?" Yeah, <laughs> because he stood up to those Yanks, John. <laughs> of course. <laughs> He has the respect of the people now, yeah. even though he wasn't technically elected. Whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> he was elected by our representative. Listen, the UK is a republic, not a democracy, all right? Oh, hi. Who is it? It's carol singers. Well, give him a quid and tell him to bugger off. It's it's a cute contrived scene in which he finally meets her, and then they go to the pageant. Now, John, let's let's lead up to that other pageant as well. Uh, but Greg, we have so many storylines we need to get through first. Yeah. <laughs> so so anyway, you know where this is going. Obviously, he wins the affections of Natalie, the caterers, and so mm. and there's one more scene of embarrassment. But anyway, um, the prime minister done. Biggest storyline done. Let's let's get something a little bit more smaller and domestic. How about a, a widower, huh? <laughs> Which one? <laughs> We've got so many. <laughs> uh, I'm speaking about Liam Neeson. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Speaking about it, the most tragic residences, uh, um, the residence that this movie has, um, Liam Neeson is a real widower. Um, <laughs> he lost yeah. his wife, uh, Natasha Leone, in 2009. Um, or, sorry, not yeah. Natasha Leone, Natasha Richardson in 2009 to a skiing accident. So, um, yeah. it's kind of, it's, it's kind of, I don't know, collar tugging to see him play a widower here, too. Like, yeah. And to make it even more confusing, he's like a stepdad, so the kid isn't actually his. So he's like, now that the mom is out of the picture, now he has to work a lot harder to kind of build this relationship with his son. His son has, has fallen hard for an American exchange student at school, and you know he, he doesn't know how to, how to let his affections be known. All he knows is he, he watches on TV, rock stars get a lot of ladies. I need to be a rock star. And you know Liam Neeson being the you know, supportive father, I assume that if, if that kid were ever kidnapped, he would go after him with his certain special skills. <laughs> but right now, you know, he's trying to be there for him emotionally. Um, 
two so, important things here, John. Two important things. Okay. One, like like the like the quote negotiations that happen uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. at Ten Downing Street between the United States and the UK. Um, here, very ambiguous why his stepson has fallen head over heels for this girl. He, he tells his dad, like, I'm in love. And he's just like, well, gung-ho, we gotta go, we gotta go get her. <laughs> and not once asking, like, well, what do you like about her? Like, what is it? Yeah. Is she beautiful? Is she talented? Is she funny? You like, could, what? You could make the argument that it's like, he's trying to do anything to distract him of the fact that his mom is dead. Yes, <laughs> So okay, it's like, fair. all right. Because initially the kid locks himself in his room and he thinks, oh my God, he's heartbroken over his dead mom. Oh no, he's heartbroken because he doesn't know how to express his affection. So that's why he goes all gung-ho into, all right, let's get this girl. Let's do it. Yeah. And he has to put up with that incessant drumming. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, so silly parent stuff there. Another important key, though, when he finally does get his son out of his room and out of his figurative shell, he takes them to the to the one spot where you can know you can always talk to somebody, and that's on the bank of the Thames, and, mm. and shoots... And shoot just uh, St. Peter's and the Millennium Bridge and and in the city of London yeah. skyline, <laughs> yeah. And so that's the other th- another characteristic of all these storylines. They have to feature London prominently. <laughs> um, I have to remind you constantly where they are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah if, Even though there's so much character to be had in the in the British in the in the north in the English Isles, yeah, yeah. I've been, I've been watching uh, the the pottery show, the new pottery show on HBO Max. It's basically Great British Bake Off with pottery. Oh, okay, <laughs> it's like, right. oh, oh, it's about the rich tradition of rich pottery. <laughs> okay. I thought it was the topiary show, which is literally the Great British Baking Show <laughs> yes, except literally. about flowers. <laughs> They're all the same. Yeah. They're all the same. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. Ride that wave. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, but yes, this this story terminates with uh, with the uh, you know go for her. You know, she's getting on the plane. You have to break all protocol, <laughs> even though we've already referenced nine eleven guys. Like, come on, this yeah. is in poor taste. Very, very poor taste. Again, none of it's defined very well. He just mm-hmm. he just no, I like this girl and doesn't explain it until the very end when she, we realize she's a, a extremely talented singer when she sings at the pageant. Uh, he uses his drumming skills, I guess, to court her affections or that's a, like it turns out she knows his name or something like mm-hmm. you know it's a very thin this is this is probably the thinnest one this, and yeah. world-class actor Liam well not that i wouldn't say that's the thinnest one the thinnest oh, okay. one revolves around i think his name's simon the the freaking cretin <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> this one features a scene that's literally rewritten from a previous romantic comedy <laughs> he is a caterer at a party and embarrasses himself like, oh, says the food is is awful, right? And, and is trying to hit on this lady. Unbeknownst yeah, to him, the lady is the caterer and provided the food that he's now denigrated. No game whatsoever. Yeah. And he blames it on, you know, oh, British women. They're just so tight-lipped. They're just like, oh, they're too stuck up. I need an American girl. What am I going to do? I'm going to go to America. And so, again, like... What this movie's setting you up for, and then the reality of what actually happens, just does not gel. No. Because the whole joke is, I'm going to go to America, and I'm going to get laid like crazy. He literally has a backpack full of condoms. <laughs> and where is he going? Milwaukee, Wisconsin. <laughs> Hell yeah, where all the babes are. <laughs> like, so it's setting you up to think, like, oh, he's in for a rude disappointment. No, the exact opposite <laughs> happens. He meets, the first women he meets are three able-bodied supermodels <laughs> who just want to jump his bone. Because he has that, that, that... English accent, this just makes them wet all over. <laughs> yeah. 
I couldn't. It literally. I I paused the movie at this point and I said, "Is this a joke? <laughs> like, are we gonna?" That's like, the thing. I thought like, "Oh, it's setting like this is too obvious. They're gonna set it up so she, they're like con women. Yeah, they're gonna or, steal or, all his money or a dream sequence. Like, and yes. he's gonna wake up like, oh, I'm still at Heathrow or something. <laughs> exactly. Like, because again, they're in Milwaukee. Like, there's obviously already enough jokes yeah, built in there. If, in case there are any. British listeners, listen, like, most people in Milwaukee are built like bowling balls. <laughs> they drink like fish. They eat nothing but dairy. They, they, none of the attractive people. I'm sorry. And I don't mean to judge looking the way I do, but... <laughs> no. Th- nobody in Milwaukee is that attractive. Um, and that's, like, yeah. And again, like, what what is the subversion here? It's like... But, yeah, oh, and the other embarrassing thing, it's literally the home to Miller Beer. And instead, he goes to this bar, this ersatz bar, which... I, I don't know why you hired all these world-class actors and they had, like, three sets they had to work with and had to, like, just rearrange them. And he goes to this, like, awful-looking bar and orders a Budweiser and literally says the tagline, King of Beers. And again, yeah. I thought, like, is this a joke? Like, how how am I supposed to invest myself in these characters actually getting together if I'm, like, literally watching a Budweiser commercial now into in, in what it looks like a skit? <laughs> like, what looks like a skit of, like, oh, the most beautiful women in the world live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Exactly. Like, and again, the defining thing is like love actually it's like well we met in a three-way <laughs> and i brought her back to england <laughs> on a visa i don't know <laughs> who cares the details don't matter That's, that should have been the tagline the details don't matter yeah <laughs> Lacking a lot of specificity. I yeah. think the, the one of the other uh, ones that annoyed me the most is uh, who's the American who works under um, Alan Rickman's? Yeah. Um, so the th- that the last one we talked about is definitely the thinnest. Here is the two that disappointed me the most because they're trying to do something emotional mm-hmm. and obviously like failing utterly. Um, you're talking about Laura Linney. Laura Linney. Okay, yes. that's the that's I recognized her, but I couldn't remember. So she's an American expatriate and she's pining for a co-worker who's played by the Brazilian model and actor Rodrigo Santaro um and like this is so obvious that her boss calls her into their into his office and says, "Are you going to ask this guy out or what?" <laughs> Which is really inappropriate for yeah, a boss to do. Usually, oh, not the most inappropriate thing this guy does during this movie, but <laughs> no, good point. <laughs> but it's Alan Rickman. You forgive him. I, you know, yeah. It's 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 hard. Yeah, Hans Gruber. Yeah, Hans Gruber can charm the pants off anybody, um, <laughs> and he almost does. But anyway, um, so that's how. That's how badly she's pining for him, and you see, like, uh, she's she's so reticent, or she's always on her mobile um, for mm-hmm. reasons we'll explain later. And this is my other huge problem with the movie: 
John, you know I like more subtle drama, uh, a little bit more <laughs> subtle acting. But the way Richard Curtis directs, he directs as if it's a silent movie, and he tells yeah. the actor, like, you got to imagine your audience like doesn't speak English. You got to communicate like that you're in love, that you're really excited, or you're really disappointed. So Laura Lenny, God bless her, hugely talented actress, multiple award winner. She plays it to the chief. She, she is waving her arms around. She's like, oh no, and like throwing her head in her hands and like falling over her desk. And it's it's an embarrassment. And I, I felt yeah. I felt so I felt worse for her than her character pining for this guy. Yeah, I mean you've got this yeah this cartoon esque you know demonstration of a woman who's in love. Yeah, Ca- juxtapose that with the person who's always on her mobile is her brother. She's she's the only one left to take care of her brother who's afflicted with uh, <laughs> something yeah so t- two things here one this is not the first character in which um, Laura Linney's looking after a mentally ill brother. I think they cast her because she did such an able job in You Can Count on Me, co-starring with Mark Ruffalo. And I'm wondering, like, why didn't they get Mark Ruffalo in a little reunion, huh? Like, why couldn't they do that? Come on, Mark Ruffalo, which costs too much money for that one scene. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the other problem, too, John, you said this movie's badly produced, and I'm going to speak to this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I said earlier that the lighting is flat, and the sets aren't very creative or just like odd and in weird ways. Um, here's a problem: if you want to communicate, like say, and how heart wrenching it is to have a brother in care, it's probably not great to have your mental hospital set look the same as your family house set look the same as your single woman set look the same yeah. as your like single guy set look the same as your bar set. That's mm-hmm. that's the problem here. And literally, like he does take her home. He, or sorry, she does take the man who she's been pining for home and we see her bedroom she's got the little like tv on her night she's got the bed and then we cut to like a minute later her co-worker the secretary who's about to have an affair with her boss she has literally the exact same <laughs> exact bedroom same. <laughs> except done up in like pink lights I th- yeah done up in pink lights and the, and the furniture's reversed but it, you look at it it's literally the exact same bedroom <laughs> And, and again, there was no purpose for to see her interior bed. It's because it's not like she does anything. All she, all you see is like little, you know, she puts on the necklace. You could have done that with just a vanity. Like you didn't I, need to do the whole like. <laughs> no, and like we're gonna nitpick here. But if the movie were better, we wouldn't worry about these things, or we were emotionally invested. But instead, like we don't believe a word of it. Like we don't believe no, that yeah. he actually has that he, she constantly gets like 50 calls a day or one every five minutes from her brother who's acting out or something like it's the mental like, hospital it, wouldn't let her call her or no, why yeah, is she picking again, up like, every time it's about nothing and yeah and it's a lack of specificity it's like is he bipolar is he autistic you know it's like split the difference who knows like if they had actually done the research and like did the time then it's like oh we could have made it like seem like really true to life like this is how you know dealing with a with a bipolar person is or mm-hmm. this is what it looks like when you actually have someone who's autistic who needs like special care instead it's just like this like middle road where he can call any time of day and she has to pick up and listen to him ramble nonsense but also at the same time he could harm himself too where he's like almost like hits himself in the head it's like well which is it like i yeah. know i know it's obviously a lot of nuance there and you obviously can't dedicate so much time to this because you've got the guy getting boned in milwaukee yeah. that you need to <laughs> focus on yeah and the same thing like she She's desperately pining for this guy, played by Rodrigo Santoro. 
Now, what is it about this guy that she loves so much? <laughs> like, I understand he's hot. <laughs> I know he's, he's hot. A mo- <laughs> it's the same thing. It's just in the way he looks. And like, she brings him home, and their night is interrupted by her, her schizophrenic or mentally ill brother. And there, and there's nothing. He can be a good actor, but like, there's nothing to him. He's just like okay. And then we never see him in the movie again. <laughs> yeah, he has no um, personality yeah. whatsoever. Same with the character played by Alan Rickman. Uh, he he starts to pine for his secretary, who's a beautiful woman. Um, but what is it about her other than like she's a Jezebel? Yeah, she, other than she's a slatter, and and this is communicated by the fact that she decided to dress up in the for the for the office Christmas party in a two piece devil outfit, like the sexy Halloween costume you see online. Uh, and again, like no subtlety whatsoever. She's like, hey. So, what are you doing later? I was thinking of sucking something off. Yeah. Like, like, it's not even flirtatious. It's just overt. Like, hey, want to bang me behind your wife's back? Let's do this. (laughs) Also, I believe that's not the first grossly inappropriate thing she does at the workplace. I think she also organized the the Christmas party at an art gallery that her friend owns. Okay, this has also confused me. I was like, is this this an art gallery, and does Rick Grimes own it? I'm very confused. Is Rick Grimes the artist? Is he gay? I'm really confused. (laughs) Yeah. So we'll get to the last storyline there. But she's connected. She's friends with Rick Grimes, Andrew Lincoln, the actor's Andrew Lincoln, um, who owns this art gallery. And is, oh, this is the perfect venue for our our company Christmas party, which they only plan like one week before Christmas. (laughs) That also baffled me. But it turns out this art gallery is showing just massive wall-sized nudes. <laughs> and instead of saying, oh, this was really clever, secretary, for you to book this, instead you would say, no, this is grossly inappropriate, this is a terrible venue for our office Christmas party, and you're fired. <laughs> Again, I don't also, know how it flies like- in the UK. I don't know what, what goes there, but... It's like, and it's like weirdly Christmas themed art. It's like gigantic nudes. Okay, yeah, not above board at an art gallery, but they have like Santa hats, you know, strategically <laughs> placed. So I'm like, okay, so the artist like wanted to make it festive. What statement is the artist making? That's what I was thinking about the whole time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> instead of whatever was happening at this, you know, mm-hmm. and then oh uh, yeah, okay, so Rick Rhymes is he he's best friends with um, Chujiwan Ejiofor. Chujiwan Ejiofor, um, yes. Yeah, uh, uh, the the evil wizard from uh, 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 Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, he's not evil yet. Well, have his way. You're right. He, he comes evil in the. Yeah, he he'll eventually be his nemesis. Anyway, <laughs> why do I know this? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he's best friends with him, and you can tell there is some friction between them because you know he's marrying Elizabeth Swan. And so it's like there's obviously he's he's cold blooded towards Elizabeth, and like we're all trying to figure out why. It's because. Not because he feels like he's losing his best friend. It's because he has eyes for her. Yeah. And we learn this because she's like, oh, I need to borrow the... Uh, the um, uh, the uh, wedding video that you the shot. The wedding video. The professional one that we ordered that probably cost thousands of dollars was crap. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just which case, yours. <laughs> yeah. In which case, I would have been right, righteously pissed. But it's Kira Knightley. She's obviously just a, a, a bubble of fun and effervescence. So... <laughs> So yeah, and so when they watch the tape, she realizes, oh, he's only focused on me. Like weird close-ups, like yeah. not very good cinematography. <laughs> well, professional, no, prof- wonderfully done close-ups. <laughs> like, why isn't he a professional cinematographer? I mean, because <laughs> he's too busy doing Christmas-themed nudes. <laughs> Duh. <Yeah>. Okay, <laughs> he's got his own art career he needs to worry about. 
And so this leads to, you know, him kind of revealing she has affections for her with cue cards in a very like Bob Dylan-esque uh, sequence yeah. where he confesses her love and they basically kiss, but then they go their separate ways. So, you know, they part ways, but amicably. Which, again, I kind of like the fact that the movie has all these storylines and not all the people are meant to be together. Yeah. And I wish the movie kind of played with that a little bit more and maybe a little bit more darkly. The darkest we get is, again, Severus Snape married to P.L. Travers, (laughs) and he's cheating on her. Is like, did he actually cheat on her? Did they actually consummate? Or uh, no? uh, apparently, it's left. It's left vague. Yeah, it's left vague. Apparently, the writer confirmed that yes, either something was left on the cutting room floor or out of the page, or they didn't film it from the script. But yes, he did cheat on her, and she learns this devastatingly, devastating, de- whatever. Sadly, by <laughs> <laughs> uh, she she sees him getting a necklace and thinks like, oh, I'm I'm gonna get that necklace. Christmas Eve like rolls around. I get one present. I want to open up that necklace, and it turns out it's a c- CD that she already owns. And this is mm-hmm. the one scene I like, the one effective scene. Exactly, it, it's when we actually enter conflict. It's when it's the only time yes. in which like something's not smooth. Not even lighting. Even lighting changes. And I she mean, has it gets to, to play out in real time. Yes, like it's the it only gets, scene like it gets to play out in real time. Like you see her having to put on like a brave face for her kids, and then she excuses herself. And then here's here's something else I didn't expect: a directorial choice. <laughs> Like there was a reason that the camera was placed here to convey something, and it's and it's a, a full shot of Emma Thompson in the bed, but she's like far left of the frame, and the other rest of the room's empty, and that communicates like isolation. Now she's alone, like now that you know there's this con- something's opened up in her marriage, and she doesn't know like where she is. She's not in the center. She's off to the side. Like it's actually communicating something, and I'm like, oh, I wish we could really see the actress's face like communicate this too. And then bam, they do cut to a close up, and yes, she's like. She's pouring out all these tears, and then has to. And I'm like, yes, this actually works. Like it wasn't just our smooth, like half thought out, crappy storylines, whatever. Like something's actually working. Um, John, how does this terminate? <laughs> Where do we uh, go from here? They, she just scowls at him for the rest of the movie and says, "Like, oh, you done messed up, but I still love you." And I'll, <laughs> yeah, I'll see you back at the airport. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where was he going? I did we. <laughs> Did we set up a trip he was supposed to go on? What what happened? I don't know, John. We still we st- we're forty minutes in. We still have two storylines to get to. Oh um, God! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the one, the only one that's even thinner than than the the pud, the, the idiot going to Wisconsin, is um, two stand-in actors for what looks like a a, a porno shoot. Maybe the most expensive porno ever shot. <laughs> They're stand-in <laughs> actors. And he even and it's it's Bilbo Baggins and some other actress I yeah. don't recognize. Um, he, he he even con- like confesses that he once stood in for like Brad Pitt. So it's like this has to be like a big shoot or something. Yes, but it's like it's for a porno. And again, it's like oh, it's so awkward. Like they're both like naked, pretending to like have sex and like mm-hmm. carrying on a normal conversation. Yeah, like, well, all these dozens of people around them are arranging the lights, putting the light meter, like you know, yeah, setting up cameras, stuff like yeah. Exactly, it's it's absurd, but again, like I like that because it's like it leans into it. It it's it's kind of like perfectly pitched because it it never gets it it's absurd, but they play it completely straight, yeah. and it never gets schmaltzy. It never gets like overly silly. Like uh, it it inevitably ends with like, you know, you were a fun conversation. You want to grab a drink sometime? Okay, and then they start a relationship, and that's fine. That's perfect. That's great. <laughs> that, Compared that's to everything fine else. for maybe like the first ten minutes of a real movie. <laughs> Not it's like something that's taking up time from Hugh Grant and Alan Rickman and you know yeah. like 
Well, and again, like, going back to the connective tissue, he shows up at the pageant later, and it's like, oh, I recognize you. How's it going? How'd you guys meet? Womp womp. Oh, we can't possibly talk about that. Anyway, but really the broader thing that brings all these themes, and and only the plutonic love that throughout this relationship, or throughout this entire movie, is a, a singer played by Bill Nighy, um, Phil, Phil from Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if we're just gonna keep going on that theme, uh, he plays he plays an over the hill singer um, who's re-recording a very cheesy, crappy Christmas song, and he wants to be speaking oh, of he cultural. Lets the whole world know. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, he wants to be number one on Radio One at Christmas time. I didn't know. Is this a thing in England? Was this a thing that in two thousand? I chalked it up to like TL TLR or. Total, Total, Total request, request live, yeah, TR. Yeah, like, yeah. like, like the last kind of bastion of like music having any relevance in culture. Yes, like where it was like, oh, what's number one right now, or like, oh, what music video is playing? I chalked it up to that. Yeah, I assumed that it was like it's the same level over there as it was over here. And again, once two thousand five hit, no one cared anymore. Yeah, yes, <laughs> there was a VHS tape in two thousand three in this movie, so yeah. <laughs> but. This is kind of the the whole overarching thing. Was like his he's washed up. He's doing all these embarrassing talk show appearances to play up his awful song, and then he realizes once it does hit number one, he he achieves this level of success. But he realizes um, his poor manager, his poor fat manager, who's been negging throughout the whole <laughs> throughout the whole movie. He realizes, um, okay, I've abused this guy. Now time to build him back up um, to to, the, to form his personality in the way that I want it. Um, classic, <laughs> classic abusive relationship technique. Um, <laughs> And instead of partying with dozens of women, he says, "I'd rather sit. I'd rather sit alone with you and watch a porno at Christmas." Um, so kind of sus, if you ask me. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I accepted it because you know, Davy Jones is just such a talented actor. You know, I, 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 I let it slide. I was like, "All right, it's fine." <laughs> like I think at this point, I was experiencing Stockholm syndrome. Just like let it end, please. <laughs> When's it gonna be over? I'd, yeah, <laughs> that's a great question. When is it going to be over? I think we've nitpicked this movie enough. Again, not a great movie product. Not, not up there with Citizen Kane or the other um, stalwarts. Not, of the... This is not Sunset Boulevard. No, no. not one bit. <laughs> no, but <laughs> stalwarts of cinema. However, if you do like want to put it on the background, this is a perfect background viewing because nothing's really happening. Um, mm-hmm. If it is, it's going to change. It's like the weather. Wait five minutes, and it'll be completely different. <laughs> I mean, I, I like again. I made that comparison. It's like I've watched this in between commercial breaks because it is kind of the perfect. It's very episodic. It's perfect for TV, like yeah. a lot of Christmas movies are. You know, perfect for TV. You know, you have it on the background while the whole family's you know cooking dinner or something like that. So mm-hmm. why not? In terms of product, it's fine. Whatever. It's fine, but I don't know. These things won't ever leave my head. Um, I'll probably be on my deathbed wondering, like, did, did Andrew Lincoln own the studio or like what? <laughs> Does Chiwetel Ejiofor ever find out that his best friend is wants to bone his wife? I and then flatline beep. <laughs> I'll die knowing what Martin Freeman's naked ass looks yeah. like. Oh God! Thank you. That will be nice. Yes, this being my answer. <laughs> Easy question. O que é que tu disseste? Sim, claro. Bravo! 
Grab me a drink. That's I, I see why you got that mic S out tonight. There you go. <laughs> You're going to need something stronger, my friend. <laughs> there you go. Uh, we've been here long well, enough. Happy Christmas, yeah, the everybody. Jury, <laughs> the jury's out on... Um, on uh, love, actually. Yeah. So I think I think it's time we we steer things into a positive direction. Greg, let's let's before this boat completely capsizes. Yeah. Let's 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 keel haul it so that into a recommendation corner, shall we? Yes. Let's go and, and let's signal the shore with a big, bright, beautiful stop spotlight. Yes. <laughs> you laughed over it. I said spotlight. I said stoplight. Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. Was that intentional? Yeah, no, 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 it was no. not. No, it's late. I'm tired. <laughs> all right. We just talked about what felt like 18 movies in one. <laughs> all of them terrible. <laughs> anyway, they have stoplights on boats, right? No, we're talking spotlight here. This is a section which we conclude every episode with um, just a wholehearted recommendation. John, if you'll allow me, we just watched a it. Christmas movie. Is it fair if well, I recommend... How appropriate. Yeah, is it fair if I recommend a Hanukkah movie? What? Yeah. I saw on Netflix again. Um, you and I saw it ten years ago, but I feel like I didn't appreciate it now. Now that I'm over thirty and nearing the end of my life, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't appreciate this movie until I did until I rewatched it. And of course, talking about the Coen Brothers, a serious man. Mm. Yeah. Do you like wine? <laughs> <laughs> it's an incredible bottle. Not more good. This this was the impetus because somebody reminded me what a brilliant character Cy Abelman is. Mm. He's a serious man, Larry. <laughs> So, this is Cy Abelman. His wife is still warm. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is a hyper-specific movie. This is this is the blank check movie. Uh, mm-hmm. The Coen brothers had basically cashed in all their goodwill and did a movie, I think, inspired by their experiences in the late 60s in this Jewish neighborhood of Minnesota, or Minneapolis. And so, it's it's basically kind of... In true Coen Brothers fashion, I think it exists just to screw with characters and and fill it with just the kookiest kind of people that they could. And so it centers around a, a Larry Gopnik, played by uh, Michael Stuhlbar. And I think the first time I didn't appreciate him as a character because everything seems to be happening at him. But here I understood like his his agency a little bit better. Oh, I understood like how how life between your t- between when I watched this movie when I was 22 and now that I'm 33 yeah. now now I understand that's that's basically how life works like a lot of yeah. a lot of bad things happen the movie the movie is intentionally trying to be unsatisfying so it yeah. takes a second rewatch because yeah I remember I remember the first time we watched it and I was like I didn't enjoy watching that but I have a sneaky suspicion it's going to stay in my head for a while yeah. and it's like like the movie is kind of perfectly encapsulated there's this moment where he goes to this rabbi seeking advice like his life is falling apart and the mm-hmm. rabbi is supposed to intone with him wisdom and the rabbi gives him this long <laughs> meandering parable that just kind of ends with it and then they all just stopped worrying about it yeah. <laughs> and again like, or like or the most facile like just care for your neighbor that's it <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like like oh, wait you took like 20 minutes of my time to tell me that like just be nice to people <laughs> i can't i can't think of another scene in a movie that like perfectly encapsulates like this is the th- this is the broader thesis of the whole movie it's yeah. like you're not going to get a satisfying ending okay yeah not satisfy i want to say challenge because i also want to set this up in contrast to what we talked about earlier like the mandalorian or love actually or heck say a marvel movie like those are these are fantasies and and they're designed to kind of comfort and like a lot of people need that, especially now. Like it's mm-hmm. good that like entertainment products could do that. But this is this is art to people. <laughs> this the, the Coen brothers are not designed to do that. And so like that's I I love the dialogue in terms of like it feels tough. Like I feel like a lot of 
dialogue in mainstream movies is too like smart or too self-referential or not like vulnerable enough to really attack attack what's the drama is in the scene and so like what's standing out to me is when they sit down at embers <laughs> uh larry gobnick his wife was cheating on him with his cuckold cy abelman <laughs> and they basically confront this and they say like and like they never face the awkwardness of it but they just tell him straight up like you got to move out larry <laughs> yeah and sigh in, the, in just the most generous way like the jolly roger's not expensive <laughs> they have reserve any hap and even when and even in those awkward moments they confront, like wouldn't it be move easier if you moved in with sigh <laughs> and it, again it doesn't get like self-referential it doesn't get silly but it's, it's just simple larry you are jesting <laughs> <laughs> No, and that's what the Cullen brothers do best. It's just that back and forth, and it's just all perfectly yeah. timed, and it's yes. like perfectly realized. It's perfectly, it's just, yeah, it's perfectly timed, and it doesn't. It's not like winking at you. It mm-hmm. it it digs down into what the real conflict is here, and that's and that's why I I like this. Like even though even if it doesn't comport to say the three act structure or an active protagonist or stuff like that, there's something about it that for all its exaggerations and dream sequences and kooky characters like it really digs down into something about adulthood um, and religion and a lot of other stuff about the the kind of urban suburban life that you and I live now um, yep. that I that I appreciate much more so I'd I'd say for for if you do want to relish in the holidays especially for our Jewish sisters and brothers um, this this is the movie for you <laughs> Did they actually celebrate Hanukkah at some point? I don't remember. Well, no, it's, 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 it's an extremely su- Jewish movie, obviously. But. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's set in the summer, and it's centered around his son's bar mitzvah. That's that's the big, that's the big kind of key event, I guess, that everything's leading up to. Um, mm-hmm. And this climactic moment when he meets uh, this this uh, revered rabbi Marshak. Um, <laughs> so that's in terms of story, that's what it's all like centering around. <laughs> mm. Okay. Yeah. And I think the original impetus for the story, like this, legend that when the Cohen brothers were were growing up, they had this. They also had this uh, this uh, rabbi talked about in hushed tones, and it would solve all your problems with a single missive. <laughs> mm. And of course, you get just get like great bits, like you know, he goes to another rabbi for help, and you know, the secretary gets up, walks all the way to the yeah. end of his desk. <laughs> <laughs> they don't even share any words; they just share a look. She walks all the way back, closes the doors, sits down. The rabbi is busy. <laughs> yeah. He's thinking. Yeah. I should I should revisit that because yeah, yeah. I haven't I haven't revisited in a while. So, mm-hmm. uh, but Greg, I've just been so busy with peak TV. Greg, do you realize we're living in peak TV? I, I thought that already passed. Age. I thought that already no. passed. Um, no, 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 Greg. Now we're in the heart of it with the streaming wars. <laughs> okay. I I don't know. I, I thought I thought it was already over, and now now the COVID nineteen has come and taken everything away from us, including Peak TV. Um, they can't. There's not enough content to produce, so I, I can't possibly understand what you're what you're going to sell to me here. Um, well, I mean, uh, Greg. Sadly, it's it's a show that was probably meant for Netflix, but it ended up on HBO Max. Okay. Um, it's starring uh, the young Kaylee Kuko. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. Um, but it's a little show called The Flight Attendant. Okay. Now I've heard about this. This isn't um, this isn't the girl who disappeared suddenly, but this is no. But this is very much cut from the same cloth. It's like um, uh, airport bookstore, you know, stall. Yeah. Like, oh, this looks like a quick read. I can pulpy, read on this pulpy thriller, fun. <laughs> yes, and uh, they've adapted into a very Hitchcockian tale of uh, the wrong woman. So uh, we've got um, 
Cassie is her name. She is a flight attendant, and she is a train wreck. No. <laughs> she is. <laughs> oh, girlfriend dish. What's going on? <laughs> she basically uses her life as a uh, flight attendant to live uh, very freely, let's say, um, mm-hmm. and drink copious amounts of alcohol. Okay. Um, this works out well for her. One night, on an international flight to Shanghai, she uh, shacks up with one of the uh, rich first-class passengers. Sadly, it doesn't uh, end up well because she wakes up the next morning and he's dead next beside her. Um, <laughs> she has no memory of anything that happened, and so uh, she does what any normal human would do. She bolts. <laughs> she yeah. cleans up what she can. She gets on her next flight and tries to get the fuck out of there. <laughs> Smart woman. Yep. Uh, what happens FBI's- in Hong Kong stays in Hong Kong. <laughs> Naturally, the FBI is waiting for the whole crew on the way back, uh-huh. <laughs> wondering, hey, this passenger was on your flight and he ended up dead the next morning. Do you guys know anything? Um, and so it's this perfect, like, Hitchcockian, like, wrong woman scenario because she gets embroiled in this larger conspiracy around this guy. Um, and obviously, everyone suspects that she's no, she knows more than she's letting on, but it's true. She is just a normal flight attendant. And on top of that, a raging alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So a lot of, a lot of the, fil- like, the comedy comes from the fact that she is just a complete mess and she's trying to unravel this larger conspiracy happening around her. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I kind of felt like it was more probably bound for Netflix is because stylistically it goes a little bit over the top because she basically has turned the hotel room into her memory palace. So <laughs> frequently she'll cut back to the hotel room with the still living um, man she shacked up with. His name is Alex. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's played by the guy who played Sonny in Treme, and I don't know the actor's name because he will always forever be Sonny from Treme to me. <laughs> but um, <laughs> thank you for that accessible reference that we all know. Obviously, we all remember. You know Sonny what? He was also Treme. in Game of Thrones. Okay, he's yeah. been in all of HBO projects. Okay, okay? <laughs> they they contract their actors well. Um. Exactly. But you know, she she frequently kind of like goes back to this room and you know commiserates with his him. And, you know, even though he's dead, like, she still kind of has, like, his personality in his head, and they kind of, like, argue back and forth and try to put clues together. Mm -hmm. Also, at the same time, during these flights of fancy, sometimes it'll, you know, draw her back to her past, and she has to relive a trauma or remember something that she had kind of, like, put away. And so she's also unpacking her trauma at the same time as it's, you know, she's trying to uncover this sinister plot that ero- that revolves around her. So okay. it's a very interesting, very tightly, uh, it's only eight episodes. So it's a very tight thriller. Uh, very funny. Like again, great performances. Uh, we also have uh, David Mamet's daughter plays like her best friend. Who's a lawyer. I like her. <laughs> yeah. Her name's Sassy Mamet. She was in um, a few episodes of Mad Men. I like her. Yeah. Yeah. I think she was in girls too. Cause that <laughs> she whole, wasn't girls. That whole show was made up of uh, Hollywood daughters. Uh. <laughs> yeah. The less said about girls, the better. So <laughs> let's just, let's just judge her on her own merits. All but, right. All right. <laughs> great performances. Some nice twists, uh, except, you know, there is one character who gets introduced about halfway through the series and you can see a twist coming with that character from the fucking moon. Okay. But other than that, like, <laughs> hey, here's just this totally random guy <laughs> she hooks up with. Probably not important. <laughs> It'll be fine, John. Everything's fine. Everything's smooth sailing for this woman. <laughs> I think she's got it together. I mean... Who wouldn't want to live who wouldn't want to live who wouldn't want to live the jet set life <laughs> and uh drink without consequence and shack up with, with whoever you want i mean well i mean that's the that's the the contrast that it's playing with because like a lot of the people every episode is kind of like the structure of it it's like she kind of destroys another friendship mm-hmm. and part of you know the people who kind of she surrounds herself with kind of put up with her because it's like all right yeah but she's fun yeah she's a mess <laughs> and yeah we're always loaning her money but it's like she's fun she makes me feel young she makes me feel needed so 
Nice. And eventually, once she gets, you know, embroiled in this plot, everyone kind of realizes, you're a mess. Get away from me. <laughs> All right, then. So, very interesting show. Highly recommended. I, th- I hope people can take home those recommendations if we can't have anything positive to say about Love Actually. <laughs> They've probably already watched it at this point. This is again. This is coming out after Christmas, so yeah. at this point, they've already watched everything. They've watched Wonder Woman 1984 and Soul and uh, Mandalorian season three is coming out. I assume before then. <laughs> Who knows? Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, that's not the only thing we're going to be seeing, John. What, what are you talking about? I thought we were wrapping it up, Greg. What, no, what, we also got surprises see... for me. Yes, I do. I do have a, a massive surprise for you, only because you didn't bring it out. So I, ne- last week, so this episode, I'm just going to bombard you with trivia challenge. <laughs> Damn it! Yeah, I'm always surprised. I should be expecting it, but yes. I'm never, I'm never ready. I'm never ready. <laughs> um, this one's not exactly timely because you didn't prepare something Christmas themed. So I'm going to prepare okay. something coming up in January. John, are you ready? Are you Let's ready for the Sundance Film Festival? Okay, is now, that who, still a thing? Yeah, who knows how it's going to happen this year, or if it's going to happen this year. However, I thought every January, Sundance Film Festival combines two of my loves, uh, independent cinema and skiing. Um, mm. I, I hope it happens again this year. Who, who the heck knows? It's probably all going to be remote like the other big festivals were. But, um, John, they have a diverse selection of films. And I oh, wanted boy. to test your knowledge and see if they actually were, did premiere at Sundance, or didn't premiere at Sundance. So I want to test your knowledge and see uh, if you can pick out a few films they either did or did not premiere at Sundance. These are premieres. These are not like retrospectives. Like I didn't, I could have chosen Christopher Nolan's Memento, but that technically premiered at Toronto the year prior, not Sundance. So I see. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. I yeah. will do my utmost, but I, I think I'm, I'm I'm pretty confident in this one because I do know the darlings. That's the thing about Sundance. It's, it's it, it it has a lot more darlings than most of the other film festivals. So mm-hmm. I think I'll be able to I think I'll be able to to glide this one out. Let's okay. Do. Yeah. That, glide out. There are 17 films here, so I hope oh, you're ready. Oh gosh. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But again, just yes or no. All right, John, a coin All flip. Right. You can you can handle this, right? You can handle let's a coin flip. Yeah. Let's What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss anyway? Um, <laughs> Call it. Call it. <laughs> yeah. All right, movie number one, 28 Days Later, directed by Danny Boyle and starring Cillian Murphy. Yes. Correct. That was a Sundance premiere. Booyah. All right. Number two, One Hour Photo, directed by Mark Romanek and starring Robin Williams. I'm going to say No. But I'm unsure about that one. Incorrect. That was a Sundance premiere. Oh, um, damn it. A long one. And again, then it got cut down for the theatrical, which makes me kind of want to see um, the full movie, but uh, it's also a pretty thin story, so I don't think it needs to be <laughs> longer than 90 minutes. But anyway. All right. Number three, American Psycho, directed by Mary Heron and starring Christian Bale. I'm going to say yes. That's correct. Yes. <laughs> I, if you want to keep uh, keep that steam escaping like sound, like steam escaping, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, number four, the butterfly effect, starring Ashton Kutcher. That's got to be a no, but I'm going to be embarrassed if it's if it's a yes. But I'm going to say no. <laughs> Prepare to be embarrassed, my friend. It is a yes. Oh no! <laughs> oh Ashton, <laughs> stick with investing, bro. Yeah. <laughs> is he an investor now? I know. Oh yeah, that he's yeah. I remember he, got, he had the biggest Twitter following for like 2009 to 2010, and I don't know nothing since then. That's all I know yeah. him from. <laughs> or what happens in Vegas? Another classic romantic comedy, oh, of course. <laughs> anyway, um, speaking of the Coen Brothers, Fargo, directed by 
the Cullen brothers, Joel and Ethan Cohen, and starring Francis McDormand. Was that a Sundance premiere or no? Um, I'm going to say yes, because I do remember it having like this kind of, it's, it's one of the early classes, because that's when the early 90s was when Sundance started to kind of hit the, its stride, or at least, you know, gain prominence. So I'm going to say yes. That's a no. You're thinking of Ugh. Blood Simple, which did yes. premiere at Sundance, but not oh, Fargo. Okay. Yeah. All right. They yeah. were already that was earlier. That was, yeah, when yeah. independent film, you know, actually rose up from the ground. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, John. Another one. Juno, directed by Jason Reitman, starring Elliot Page. I think you're trying to trick me. I'm going to say no. Oh, John, that can't get anything past you. That is a no. It premiered at the Toronto Film Festival. Ah, where it was shot. Ah, it feel it feels like a Sundance movie, but it's not. Yes, yeah, that's. I knew. I knew you were trying to trick me. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, number. I didn't number these. Where, where we are. All right. Next movie, Alpha Dog, starring Emil Hirsch and Justin Timberlake. Yes. That is correct. It was a yeah. Sundance movie based on a real uh, killing. Unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, unfortunately, big, that the killing died. With big names like that, with yeah. big names like that, how could it not yeah. be? Okay. Next movie, Reservoir Dogs, directed by Quentin Tarantino and starring Harvey Keitel. <sighs> it was either that or Venice. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna safely assume Venice. So no. Incorrect. That's a. <sighs> that's a yes. That was uh, Quentin Tarantino's coming out party. John was that's that Sundance? Right. Yeah. It was him and Kevin Smith. Mm-hmm. All right, next movie. Back. Yep. Next movie, Get Out, directed by Jordan Peele. Get Out, <laughs> directed by Jordan Peele and starring Daniel Kaluuya. I'm going to say yes. Are you sure? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, Jeffrey contestants are usually more confident, John. I don't want to critique, critique you, but <laughs> Greg, he just died, okay? I know. <laughs> I, I apologize. Too soon. Okay. <laughs> but you are correct. That was a Sundance premiere. All right, next. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. 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 <laughs> good. 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 All right. Cool. Okay. Good. Uh, <laughs> next movie, Saw, directed by Lee Winnell and starring Danny Glover. I'm gonna go with a yes. This was a Sundance premiere. That that is indeed correct. What am I saying? Mm. Yes, it was a Sundance premiere. But what about Saw Five? Where did Saw Five? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't have uh, Saw 5's release schedule up here. Um, I'm assuming it came around around Halloween. I could be wrong, but... (laughs) All right, next movie. We've only got five more. You ready? Let's do it. Moonlight, directed by Barry Jenkins. Ooh. I'm going to go with a yes, but I'm not confident about it. Okay. I wish you were less confident because it's a no. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I knew it. I knew it. I don't know why I went with it. (laughs) All right. Four left. Paris, Texas, directed by Vim Vendors and starring oh, Harry Dean. That's Sin. a definite. That's a definite Sundance premiere. The, Full show. Yes, absolutely. You yeah. you knew that you were 100 percent right on it. Okay. Mm. Now let's see about this next one. Den of Thieves, starring Gerard Butler and Fifty Cent. <laughs> that's gonna be a no. Okay, you're right on that one. I thought it could trick yes. you again because there is some pulpy stuff to come out of Sundance, but yeah, but not mm-hmm. not 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 with Fifty Cent. Okay, yeah. if if a big actor is going to be there, it's got to be something respectable. I'm pretty yeah. sure Den of Thieves went straight to VOD. So <laughs> no, it got a respectable release in theaters, and now is a, is a poster is a is a dorm room poster classic. Mm. All right, last two. You ready? Yep. The Disaster Artist, directed by and starring James Franco. That's a no, because I think that one premiered in Venice. 
That's correct. It, even though it's it, it's one of the admirers of, of film cultists everywhere. It was not a Sundance mm-hmm. premiere. Yep. Okay, last one. You ready? Sex, Lies, and Videotape, directed by Steven Soderbergh and starry, starring Andy McDowell. I mean, Steven Soderbergh is one of those other Sundance darlings, like, again, like Quentin Tarantino and uh, Kevin Smith, so I'm going to say yes. <laughs> John, ring the damn sales bell. That is correct. Again, you've nailed this competition once you again. Can't, you can't get it past me. You can't, you can't stop this, okay? <laughs> I think John, like you did that. way better than I thought. I thought, yeah. I thought the horror movies would trip you up. I thought some of the action movies, like if, if once you hear Butterfly Effect, <laughs> anything's on the table. Does <laughs> <laughs> Butterfly Effect count as a horror movie? Uh, it's like a psychological thriller. It was like mm-hmm. that. It, there was a, a period. Uh, I think they were all like um, we were in the throes of the Iraq War, and it was all about. Uh, Troops suffering PTSD and getting flashbacks. So there was that. There was the jacket, starring uh, Adrian Brody. That was another Sundance premiere. Oh. <laughs> Y'all remember the jacket? <laughs> when are we gonna start getting like? Because I think it was let's see, twenty years after Vietnam. Are we close to like an Iraq War kind of renaissance for films again? Or no, no, I think no. It's, no, it's already past it. Like, okay. The desert's not as interesting as the jungle. Mm, Coming point. home is more, yeah, boring. <laughs> <laughs> the pr- the, the problem is there was no draft. These are all volunteers. <laughs> These are, yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, yeah, or they were like consigned into it, obviously by a, th- th- because most of the, sadly, most of our American army is made up of, of people in the working class who don't have much of a choice. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's practically a draft at this point for them, not not for us. Um, not for, not for the. I mean, that's how the draft always worked. It's the draft yeah. for poor people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ugh, on yeah. that lovely note, hey, <laughs> let's talk social media, shall yeah. we? <laughs> if you want to hear more of these angry missives about uh, <laughs> the state of culture, particularly, uh, particularly Love Actually, um, I feel like we could go longer on this episode if we wanted, but. If, if you are craving more, you can find it on social media. We're on Facebook, at Aspiring Snobs. We're on Twitter, at Aspiring Snobs. And on Instagram, guess what the handle is there? At Aspiring Snobs. That's right. Again, yeah. you're as smart as John on that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hell yeah. That's good branding. Consistency. Yes. <laughs> That's what matters. And all the stuff to do is tell them, well, oh, I got ahead of myself. Yeah. First, we need to say that if you have any questions or comments or you have any recommendations, you can always email us directly at AspiringSnobs at gmail.com. Yeah. Again, we well. If you have questions for us, we'll read them on air or while we're recording or whatever mm-hmm. the device we use to record this. <laughs> <laughs> and we do take recommendations. Um, however, we won't need one for what we're watching next week. I hope you do watch along with us. I'm, you know, this is, this has been kind of rambly. I think we need to like learn some professionalism from this podcast, don't you think? <laughs> I think I, what we need to start if we're going to be called aspiring snobs, we do ooze professionalism. I mean, compared to other podcasts, I think we do pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing we don't have a booker, we don't have guests. Um, that is true. Yeah, uh, th- that's one thing we, we can. Yeah, but I, I don't know if we if we really want to get get good in this business, we gotta we gotta con- comport with a professional here. Mm-hmm. Um, we gotta shack up with one, as it were. Um, <laughs> we've got um, we have to have like the Mandalorian. We have to have a professional bounty hunter and a much much younger cohort. <laughs> um, <laughs> And if if you couldn't pick up, we're talking about Leon the Professional, a movie you've seen but I haven't. Again, another uh, dorm room poster classic. 
um, that could have a little bit more going for it. Who knows? But uh, yeah, as long as we don't talk about the uh, director or writer, I think we're in, we're in good shape. Okay, <laughs> we're we're going full death of the author. Okay, <laughs> was it directed by Roman Polanski, John? Or <laughs> no, Woody Allen. That's who it was. Okay, no, it was Brian Singer. Greg, come on. <laughs> All right, <laughs> something about the profession attracts. I don't know, just the, the oddest characters. Um, that's about the nicest way I can put that. Anyway. All right, but yes, you you have that to look forward to next episode. So until then, thank you everybody for listening, and until next time, maintenez aspire. You could have at least done it in Hebrew to tie back to the series. Maybe. I just, are you kidding, John? You have to go through years of schooling just to read like four words out of the Torah. Like I'm not. 